This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. We have a Nobel Prize winner in our midst today. Professor Daniel Kahneman will talk to us about Netanyahu's judicial overhaul and the ramifications for Israel, security tensions in Jerusalem and beyond, and a chutzpah award which will wreak havoc this week. It's Unholy. I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. A Nobel Prize winner. I mean, we are really upping our game, you'll need. Um, we have, it's, I think it's our first uh, Nobel laureate on the show, economics legend and psychology maven Daniel Kahneman is going to be our guest. I mean, I do wonder how we sort of top that. Um, once, you've got, once you've got a Nobel Prize, where'd you go after that? It's downhill from here. It really is. I, I was thinking about this today because, you know, I, I don't want to generalize uh, Jewish parents, but let's generalize them. They deserve it, right? They they have this tendency <laughs> to give their children the feeling like um, they've achieved a lot, but not enough, right? So as to drive them to achieve further. So uh, I don't know, throwing an example off the top of my head, it's great that you graduated uh, in honors, but why only A minus in Shakespeare? You know, kind of that thing, right? Are, this is very quintessential Jewish are we, parents. Are we sliding into memoir and autobiography here, you'll need, possibly? <laughs> just, a, just a tad, just a tad. <laughs> so um, so if, if, a, if a Jewish uh, boy tells his parents that he's getting the Nobel Prize, how do they, on the one hand, say, great, but we're still a little bit dissatisfied. So what would that be? It would be, why not? Why only one Nobel? Yeah. Why, what is the, what is the version, be, the Jewish version of they'll that? They'll be saying, well, Joshua Greenstein's parents say he's actually <laughs> got two. Um, <laughs> that would be what it would happen. And it would be, ah, so you got it in economics. I think the really great one is literature, you know. And if you get it in literature, I, th- I hear physics is the really hard prize to get. <laughs> There's a, there's a way, isn't there, for it never to be... R- Rivka's son got an EGOT. Why don't you have an EGOT? Why is it only a Nobel? You know, there Well, actually, our guest, I was thinking about the EGOT thing. What is that? Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. That's the thing. Yep. So I was thinking if you're a physicist or scientist or, or general genius like we're going to uh, have as our guest, he's pretty close to it because he has a presidential medal of freedom as well i mean that is huge to have the united states presidential medal of freedom that is your life's work and a nobel prize that's a mop i mean it's or or that's a min or something i mean that's i don't know what the initials are for nobel medal i mean he's he's got the collection so so you're saying even jewish parents can't be dissatisfied with him like he they has they have to be very satisfied oh no i was definitely not saying that because they would find a way (laughs) to say that's not enough because if you've got the presidential medal of freedom and the nobel they'll say why not the oscar you know and if you've got the oscar why not the nobel so no i think i think our jewish parents are always fine there's always room for improvement uh, with them. Um, It's obviously been another very big news week, I mean, in Israel, but also actually internationally in terms of reaction to Israel, um, with a bit of diplomatic activity and also kind of world opinion is sort of moving in interesting ways. So, but I mean, before we get into all the kind of global responses to what's happening on the ground, I mean, you know, how, how are things as you see it? 
What's actually happening on the ground, you mean? Mm. Well, first of all, tensions are running uh, high between Israelis and Palestinians this week. Last Thursday morning saw an IDF raid in Janine on a terrorist cell, which left 10 dead. Nine of them are uh, gunmen, one unarmed civilian, a Palestinian woman. Then two terror attacks followed in Jerusalem, one in the northern neighborhood of Neve Yaakov. Seven Israelis murdered in a shooting near a synagogue. This is the deadliest Palestinian terror attack since 2008. And the attack was followed by another shooting in Jerusalem Saturday morning, two Israelis seriously injured. The assailant, a 13-year-old Palestinian from East Jerusalem. If we could just pause on that for a moment, Jonathan. Two different terror attacks. One saw a 14-year-old Israeli murdered, Asher Natan. The other, a 13-year-old Palestinian, Mahmoud Aliwat, is the shooter. Anyone thinking about, still thinking or still believing in a future of peace between Israelis and Palestinians, I think, can't um, help but despair at these facts. So it's clear what's needed really is a, is a responsible adult to calm things down. Uh, enter stage right Itamar Ben-Gvir, the far-right politician and minister of national security, wants to worsen the conditions for security prisoners, Palestinian uh, terrorists in Israeli prisons. This issue of conditions of Palestinian security prisoners is a very big issue, both on Israel's side and the Palestinian side. Israelis have been long agitated by the fact that their conditions, especially the Israeli rights, think that they're too uh, lenient in their conditions. On the other side, the Fatah Hamas, Islamic Jihad, this all unites Palestinians. So the minute you do anything connected to those conditions, what you're going to see immediately, and we saw immediately, rockets uh, fired from Gaza to Sderot. Uh, Ben-Gvir himself being pretty proud about that connection and saying he will continue to clamp down on the conditions in the uh, prisons, that might lead to, you know, a flare-up. Uh, but right now, there's no one stopping that in particular uh, right now. Yeah. I mean, it's an old and very sort of crude axiom in newsrooms that, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And I had noticed that for a while, Israel and the judicial reforms, which we're going to come on to, weren't really getting major traction in terms of international media attention but once that round of violence happened those news organizations who had not really been paying attention started tuning in and particularly the things you mentioned i mean i think the things that got attention well yes nine dead in janine the notion of an attack near a synagogue on you know the eve of the sabbath that is a motive and then the thing you picked up on about the age of the shooter, a conflict that is sort of eating its young uh, when young people. So all for all those reasons, I did clock that, you know, BBC News and uh, American newspapers and other CNN started paying more attention to this conflict than they have for a long while. And that mm -hmm. got a lot of attention. I mean, also because diplomacy, you know, came again in the form of Anthony Blinken, Tony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, visiting the region and doing a really interesting press conference with Netanyahu. I mean, those are, uh, 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 they appear superficially to be absolutely rote pro forma. They, everyone says nice things about each other, but you, we've all learned to sort of deconstruct them. And the famous one was the time when Netanyahu sat next to Barack Obama and gave him a lecture about security and, you know, we cannot go back to Auschwitz borders, hideous phrase of Netanyahu has used many, you know, nearly a decade ago in that one. Tony Blinken didn't exactly get revenge for that, but he did do something a bit similar as he stood next to Netanyahu and started talking about, you know, the giving him a civics lesson 
in democratic, uh, liberal democratic norms and institutions, rule of law, and so on. But he also did say, you know, we remain attached to believing in the two-state solution. And, you know, it just prompted me to think, I know why you're saying that, Tony Blinken, because that's the sort of safe place, that's the safe space for international diplomats. That's what they all prefer as the ultimate solution. Uh, you know, dozens of UN resolutions, etc. But, you know, maybe we're going to come on to this, but it just seems so remote as to be really what, it, uh, you know, slightly performative to even say it. I mean, why, mm. why even keep saying it when it's so clearly you've got a government doing everything to go in the opposite direction, all the, you know, announcing new settlements, passing laws that essentially make uh, a two-state, an eventual two-state solutions all but impossible. So, you know, I did think that was quite exposing. He was there to scold Netanyahu, but actually in some ways revealed the sort of impotence of the American position, I felt. Yeah, I, I, you know, I uh, think that the most, and you mentioned this, the most important thing that uh, Tony Blinken said is what he said about uh, Netanyahu's planned judicial reform. And in that area, he wasn't uh, giving out a scripted performance. That was quite, you know, even diplomatic jargon, pretty harsh. I think we sh maybe we should listen into what he was saying. As you said, it's kind of a civics lesson. What is important and what are the shared values between both countries? Let's, let's listen to that. What we come back to time and again is that it is rooted both in shared interests and in shared values. That includes our support for core democratic principles and institutions, including respect for human rights, the equal administration of justice for all, the equal rights of minority groups, the rule of law, free press, a robust civil society, and the vibrancy of Israel's civil society has been on full display of late. Building consensus for new proposals is the most effective way to ensure they're embraced and that they endure. Building consensus, says uh, Anthony Blinken, and, the, says, and thus says the Biden administration, we are not happy with what you're uh, steamrolling, they say to Netanyahu in the Knesset. Yeah, I mean, it's framed carefully because he's sort of saying, look, go ahead, do this, but just make sure you get support because then once you do, it will last longer rather than saying these are bad things, even if you do get the support mm -hmm. for them. His mention of civil society was really interesting too. He didn't just talk the talk there. He walked the walk in his visit and he had a meeting with civil society groups, uh, grassroots groups, that apparently very unusual for a Secretary of State to do that. These are groups who are not political, but they're not exactly on Netanyahu's, you know, Rosh Hashanah card list. They're not exactly his people. <laughs> and so Blinken was making a point there. But yeah, in that list of democratic norms, almost every other one that we heard there was one that is under fire, under assault from the Netanyahu judicial reform plans, because he mentioned rule of law, judges, protection of minorities. He sort of alternated them with free press and other things, but salted in there were all these norms that are being violated by the judicial reform plan. So mm -hmm. it was very striking to hear a visiting American diplomat essentially weighing in not into the usual stuff of relations with Palestinians or foreign policy or security policy, but actually Israel's domestic policy, its, it's constitution in effect, small c, and saying, you know, we, is, uh, the United States, are interested in how you run yourself. And that mm -hmm. is a line, another line that was crossed. So yeah, I mean, I think full marks for Tony Blinken for raising it, even if I think on the conflict itself, he really didn't have anything new to say. In fact, sticking, like I said, the, to the old slogans of two-state solution, mm -hmm. which 
are sounding ever more hollow given what's actually happening. I assume that behind closed doors, what he was saying is, you got to keep your coalition in check and all of the unruly parts of it make sure that everything stays in place and there's no flare-up. I don't know if he can do that. Uh, some of Netanyahu's detractors will actually say they don't know if he wants to do that. But I'm sure that is what was said to him uh, behind closed doors. Meanwhile, uh, since we did skip into the issue of uh, judicial uh, overhaul, we should say that today the Attorney General in Israel, uh, Gali Baharav Miara, I'll remind you that the Attorney General in Israel, of course, is the head of the public prosecution and the chief legal advisor to the government, telling Netanyahu clearly in a letter that he is in a conflict of interest due to his trial and should not and cannot intervene in the judicial system. Now, why is this important? First of all, because when Netanyahu says to Jake Tapper and CNN on Wednesday that the reforms have nothing to do with his trial, well, the attorney general is saying, yes, they do. And you're not supposed to be behind these reforms. Theoretically, by the way, if he continues to deal with it demonstrably and clearly uh, out in the public, and she already wrote this sort of warning to him, he can be uh, accused of breach of trust. I don't think it will go there, but that is an option. Uh, And he's not uh, supposed to at all deal with these reforms and not supposed to... um, try and make compromise, like he told uh, Jake Tapper that he's trying to make. You and your party right now could override anything no, wait, 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 wait. In the, that the wait. Supreme Court There are checks and balances on, on, on that proposal. But a simple majority vote in the Knesset. Well, there's something that could be discussed, but let me tell you, and it will be, if uh, the other side deigns to... You are willing to sl- slow it down? You're willing to... I'm willing to hear counter offers. I call for them. But here's the other thing. Okay, so you are willing you know, to slow it down. But here's a country that has exactly this provision. It's called Canada. Is Canada not a democracy? Is Britain not a democracy? Is New Zealand not a democracy? Because they all have either have this provisions of uh, such a provision or have no ability of the court to strike down laws. Counter offers. I mean, that is unbelievable to me, <laughs> even that just as a phrase. I mean, what is he? He's not in the, you know, shook here where you sort of get into kind of haggling. Give me a counter offer. You know, there are moments, I, I know this, I'm a broken record on this, the whether. Bibi Netanyahu is the Israeli Trump or whether Trump is the American Bibi. But watching that, I thought that was pure Trump that moment to say, you know, give me a, if you don't like it, give me a counter offer as if they're arguing over a real estate purchase. You know, this is the judiciary. It's the constitution of the country. If this is not to be publicly horse traded like this, and what does he mean a, a counter offer? Well, so th- if it's a majority of sixty five in the Knesset, let's let's split and we'll agree on sixty three. It just seemed to me crude for him to be doing that, and also missing the point. I mean, because as you've just told us, the Attorney General is saying you must have nothing to do with this because mm-hmm. you are yourself clearly conflicted. And listeners will remember Tom Friedman on our podcast the other day saying this is as if Richard Nixon launched a reform or uh, expansion of the Supreme Court in the middle of Watergate. You know, he has skin, Netanyahu has skin in this game, which is that he is, you know, under scrutiny uh, on trial by the judiciary. So if you start messing with the judiciary, you've clearly got a partisan self-interest in weakening them. So uh, he's obviously going to ignore that. I thought it was also interesting that um, even though we just heard Netanyahu there say, yeah, look, I'm open to negotiations, I'm flexible, nothing's written in stone. As I understand it, the man who's actually piloting these reforms, his justice minister, Yeriv Levin, said, no way, we're sticking with it. 
Right. We're sticking with the whole plan as it is. And, and as I said, it will pass. The, the reform bill will pass as written by the end of February. That is the schedule by this uh, coalition. There is no intent to arrive at any sort of uh, compromise. There's also, as you mentioned, a question what a compromise is. What do you mean when you say compromise? Do you mean, as you said, the override bill to override the Supreme Court is not 61, which is in the slimmest of majorities, but it's 63, which the coalition has anyway in the Knesset. So uh, I'm not exactly clear on what is the messaging here. I, I know that Netanyahu, look, we have to point out, Netanyahu did not give a single interview in Hebrew since the elections to Israeli media. Just kind of wrap your head around that for a second. Could you imagine Rishi Sunak after elected not giving any interviews to the uh, British media, but only to the American media or anyone else? I mean, this is quite astounding. And it's very, uh, it isn't ordinary, right, that he would do this. It shows, it illustrates that Netanyahu thinks he has a problem. And that problem exists outside uh, of Israel. And he's trying to explain. I, he's acting a little bit more like a it's a PR problem, not an actual problem, but that is what he's uh, doing. And, and by the way, if we're still on this topic, how about we hear one more thing that he's saying, which I really want to uh, kind of stress the point. Let, let's hear him say it. They decide who are the judges. In other words, they self-select. The judges self-select themselves. And they say, this is a system we have in Israel. And if I say to you, this is democracy, you'd say that's ridiculous. It's unacceptable. This is a message that is coming out from Netanyahu, from his supporters, from his supporters uh, in the U.S. I will say this quite plainly. No, they don't. The judges in Israel are appointed by a committee in the Knesset. The committee has, I'm sorry to go in granular on this, but I think it's important. The committee has three judges, four politicians, two lawyers. They need only a majority of five for any lower instance than the Supreme Court, which means the lawyers and the politicians can close the deals on any judges they want. But the judges do have, of course, a say in who are the Supreme Court judges, but even then they need to have some sort of agreement with the politicians. They can't decide on their own. To be very clear on this, Jonathan, the judges in Israel do not appoint themselves. And this is important, of course, because Netanyahu wants to change this. Netanyahu and Yariv Levine want to create a situation in which the politicians are the people who appoint the judges, not like a committee that is today, but the, the, co the politicians, especially the coalition, has the majority in this kind of appointee committee to appoint the judges. I'm very glad we're fact-checking the prime minister here because <laughs> I, from a different perspective, was equally irritated by his interview with Jake Tapper because he made a move in the interview which also does not stand up to scrutiny, and yet it's quite effective as a sort of bit of PR, which he said, look, this is no different from Canada. The judges can't strike down politicians' laws there, or in Britain, the judges can't overturn an act of parliament. So this is fine. This is no different from any other democracy. This is a classic debating move, but it's wholly disingenuous, because what it does is it cherry-picks bits of his proposal, which match up to, superficially, bits of other foreign systems without noting that those other foreign systems are completely different from Israel. So he's not comparing like with like. And that can sound, again, nerdy and sort of granular. And that's why his method is very clever as just a bit of PR on TV. But it makes a huge difference for this one simple reason. The other countries he mentions have other checks and balances on the government. So you could have a slightly weaker reach for the Supreme Court in Britain or Canada. Because, for example, they have a, a second chamber of parliament that can vote down 
decisions made by the chamber that the government control. So in Britain, you know, yes, Rishi Sunak has a majority in the House of Commons, but the House of Lords can and do vote him down. Same with the Senate. In Canada, he kept on mentioning the United States, started, you know, trying to ingratiate himself with Jake Tapper from Philadelphia saying, yeah, you're from Philadelphia. What about Independence Hall? The American setup is different because they have a written constitution, which Israel doesn't have. The reason why, tell me if I'm wrong, Yoni, but the reason why everyone has got so agitated about this judicial reform proposal for Israel is that the Supreme Court is pretty well the only restraint on executive power in Israel. There's no written constitution. There's no upper house or second chamber. Israel unusual for having just a one chamber parliament. The Supreme Court is it. And if you get the Supreme Court out of the way, you're basically unrestrained. And we'll add upon that the fact that the coalition, the government itself has a majority in the legislature because it is a coalition government. Uh, And the set of basic laws in Israel, they're not a constitution, but they're basic laws, can all of them be changed either by a slim majority or a regular majority. So again, as you say, yes, there is no other check or balance on the system but the Supreme Court. I think that uh, Jake Tapper should be lauded for the part or the portion of the interview given to this issue of judicial reform because it really is, and we've been saying this for a few weeks, the most important piece of news coming out of Israel. If this changes, it changes everything. Just look at, look, I'm not one of those people who thinks that tomorrow the Knesset is going to pass a law that takes away voting rights for women. Okay, I don't think that they would do that. But just look at what is on the table now. And it's an easy, it's an easy thing for this coalition to fix, right? Disqualifying Arab MKs from the Knesset or making it easier to disqualify them. An amendment to the discrimination law that will allow businesses and doctors to refuse service. So, So some people in the LGBTQ community, for example, the soon to be implemented exemption law for military service, all this can be done uh, pretty easily the minute you have an override clause to override the Supreme Court. So you can do almost anything. That's very important. Yeah. I mean, the thing that interests me is the where the two stories, which are in some ways separate, but they where they meet, namely the conflict that flared up again in Janin, in Jerusalem, with this decision of uh, Betelel Smotrich, the finance minister, I think, to block tax revenues that are owed to the Palestinian Authority. That's more pressure on them. Where there's a link between the conflict, capital C, if you like, and these apparently domestic reforms, I think the two are related because a government with unrestrained power can do all kinds of things. And you mentioned just one, you know, which is disqualifying Arab members of the Knesset. That obviously has an impact on Israel's relationship with its Palestinian citizens and neighbors. Well, just to make a note, and I would notice, I, I I pointed this out to you before, but notice that kind of competition building up between Smotrich and Ben Gvir, right? Who is the real right wing leader? They don't. There's no love lost between them, and it's not a coincidence that the same week that Ben Gvir had his uh, harshening conditions of the Palestinian prisoners, you see Smotrich taking uh, uh, the tax revenues from the Palestinian Authority. It's not a coincidence in my mind. But as to what you ask, I think it it's the question or the deep question here is: Does Netanyahu not? block the unruly parts of his coalition who want to move forward with things like annexation. He's not blocking them because he can't, because he's too weak, or because he doesn't want to, because his opponents will say that this chaos serves him. It serves him because it's a smokescreen to any of the judicial reform, which is, again, the most important thing that he wants uh, to move forward. So yes, there is a link uh, between these two, whether you're a Netanyahu supporter or a Netanyahu opponent, you will see that there is a link and these things all are going to move forward uh, together. That's, That's what it looks like. 
Professor Daniel Kahneman became internationally renowned with his book Thinking Fast and Slow about the way human beings make decisions. He is widely credited as the father of behavioral economics, winning the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. He's also a recipient of the US Presidential Medal of Freedom. As we've been saying, he's got the full set. A citizen of both the United States and Israel, he began his career at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem more than 60 years ago. Professor Kahneman, an absolute privilege to have you on Unholy. We have been talking lots in recent weeks about the uh, judicial reform proposals of the Netanyahu government. You've been speaking about it a bit. How serious a threat to Israel do you think these proposals are? You know, frankly, I think this is the worst threat to Israel since 1948 because it's, it's an existential threat. It's a threat to the essence of the country. It's going to change completely if this passes. I mean, it, it's just it's just a horror for Israel to join that infamous club, you know, of Hungary, Poland, and Turkey. Now there'll be four. This, well, there are no words. I suppose there are words, but <laughs> so, so I, I I would want to hear a little bit more about that because you say it's the gravest danger Israel has faced since 1948. That that means that you think that the Yom Kippur War, where Israel's actually under existential threat. This, this is worse, in your, in your opinion, yes, Professor. Because, and, and because this may be impossible to repair. Hmm. I mean, it's, it is unclear. This is a change of regime. This is a change of regime that, in fact, guarantees the dominance of the right forever, which means that it's a pseudo-democracy uh, with really no possibility because it's going to be so easy for them to stay in power when they control everything including the registration of Arab parties, which the Supreme Court that they nominate can easily cancel. So uh, it's it's a disaster of unimaginable proportions. And, and you're somebody who has not, as far as I know, you know, sounded the alarm in this kind of way ever before. I mean, there are people who regularly every two or three years say the Israel I knew is disappearing, etc. Uh, th- this is something... Uh, different. I mean, it, it, the, the Netanyahu himself was on CNN this week. Um, Yonita and I have been talking about it, defending it, saying, you know, supporting an independent judiciary is not the same as an unbridled judiciary. The balance has been thrown askew. He says, you know, all countries have separations of powers. In the last 25 years, the Israeli courts have just got over mighty, and he's just reining them back in a bit. He's not reining it a bit. He's taking full control of the judiciary in several ways. The control of the appointments, the uh, legal advisors to the ministries are not going are now going to be, instead of independent centers of powers, appointed by the ministers. Basically, the Supreme Court is going to be controlled by the government. And just to make sure, a vote of 61 can overrule anything the Supreme Court says. So basically, it's a total destruction of the ability of the judicial system to have any influence on matters of policy of governance. So it's not a small change. I mean, the, the list of lies that, that Mr. Netanyahu produced is really quite substantial. 
What do you say, though, to the Israelis and to the, the ruling party, the Likud, saying, you knew this was on the table. The majority of Israelis voted for this government and wants to implement these changes. Um, what do you say to that, that argument? The, uh, there are two slogans of the right mm-hmm. that have mm-hmm. a large segment of the population persuaded, I think. And one of them is that the court is not, people don't vote on the court. It's not mm-hmm. voted in. The government represents the will of the people. So that is the major slogan of Yeriv Levin. That's, mm-hmm. This is the will of the people. It's the, but democracies, good, solid democracies, always have the judicial system as a way of saying no to the government, as a way of controlling it. And that's what they're demolishing. So this is not a small item. One reason we were very keen to speak with you this week is because this crisis has acquired an, in some ways, perhaps unexpected economic dimension. And that is a warning from a whole lot of economists, people in business, and industry saying that this will very negatively affect the Israeli economy. And, uh, you know, as one instance of that, the founder of one of Israel's most successful tech companies, Tom Livner from Verbit, um, which is an AI human transcription uh, and AI transcription company, he's saying he's going to leave the country. He won't pay his taxes anymore. And he says there's going to be others like him. But others are talking about investment and so on. It won't be obvious to some people listening to this why a judicial change has an economic consequence. Can you explain that for us? Well, in the first place, Israel is going to be a place where lots of people that lots of people won't want to live in. This is a different regime. Many Israelis are not going to stand for it. The, and the attractiveness of Israel in the eyes of the world, joining that infamous club, this is certainly going to detract from Israel's ability to attract funding, for to attract investment, and to attract good people, attract and keep good people. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a disaster. And <laughs> the ruling coalition, they know what they're doing, I think. They just don't, they don't mind the disaster. Netanyahu, I'm sure, knows that this is very serious. But he's caught. He doesn't have many degrees of freedom. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is, he is now one of the more moderate people in his government. Mm-hmm. So, short of civil disobedience, and I think this could be coming, uh, there seems to be nothing that can be done to stop it. The chief of the Supreme Court, the president of the Supreme Court has tried uh, to negotiate, but her condition that they put on hold the legislation, which is on a fast track for approval, her request to put it on hold was denied. So they're not in a mood for negotiating. They're going to try to ram this through. It doesn't look as if it's possible to talk them out of it. So I'm interested in this. You say you're one of the people who signed the the letter to uh, Netanyahu, essentially warning him about the economic ramifications, the other ramifications of this this reform. So I wonder if you feel like that moved the needle a little bit, and also to the claims that you know you're 
the father of behavioral economy. There are a lot of people who say, look, you created just by what you said, just by this panic, you created a crash in the in the markets, which wasn't there before. It didn't happen after Yariv Levine put out his plan. It happened only after economists and others warned Netanyahu about this this issue. This is completely silly. I mean, the Yariv Levine wouldn't frighten anybody who doesn't follow the details. Now, mm-hmm. when a group of respected economists spells out the consequences, they are blamed for for causing damage. This is ridiculous. It's not really worth an answer. No, but I wonder if, because obviously after the letter was was published, there was a feeling like Netanyahu, you know, he, he called a very urgent press conference. He, he was sort of answering to this a little bit. Maybe you feel like that might change the situation that we're on. I think there are two instruments of pressure, or three really. Mm-hmm. One is economic. I mean, if there are economic consequences that can be seen, but that I think is pretty slow. The other is international pressure, and so far there hasn't been enough of it because people are wary. You know, it's against the norms of interfering with other with the internal affairs of other countries. But in this case, as Tom Friedman said in the New York Times a while ago, this is a matter of saving Israel from itself, and mm-hmm. so the true allies of Israel should speak up. They should say what they think, because what they think is that it is a disaster. They are just a little too polite in saying it. If they said it, it would attract attention. Now, what it would do is there would be a call from the far right saying this is interference in our own affairs, etc. That, by the way, already began with Blinken's visit. It would get worse. But on the other hand, there is a more moderate element that that could be intimidated, that at least would not be able to simply confront this and, and deny the importance of what is happening. And the third possibility for pressure is from civil society. It's basically civil disobedience because demonstrations are not going to be enough. Demonstrations have, have been going on for a long time. People are used to them they're not going to be enough. What kind of civil disobedience would you have in mind and what kind would you support? Well, I mean, you know, I don't I'm I don't live there. I don't really have the moral right to opine on this. I'm I'm predicting, not not giving opinions or supporting, you know, I'm predicting that there will be tax revolts. I'm predicting I'm predicting strikes. I mean, this is the kind of This is the kind of thing that in other countries at other times has led to strikes. And and strikes are taken seriously. And especially because what we're talking about here is the element that is against this includes the economic and intellectual elite of the country. I mean, Mm -hmm. Netanyahu was unable to find a single economist to accompany him to his press conference. So he is completely isolated in that. And and the strike from that element, which is the elite of the country, would, I think, be impressive. At least it would be noticed. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the, the, I think that the demonstrations have had no impact at all. I, I just wanted, on this point about pressure, because you mentioned at the top, uh, the, uh, top there economic pressure and international pressure. And I just wondered about when the two come together, and there will be some investors who think 
it's no longer reliable to invest in Israel because you can't rely on the courts and so on. The economic pressure, the realization of the economic danger is not going to happen soon enough. You know, the law could be passed within the next few weeks and the, the economic consequences are going to, you know, they're, they're going to take months to be realized. So the pressure has to be at the same rate that the events are developing on the ground in Israel, and that's immediate. You know, you're, you talk, it's, it's, these are very harsh warnings from you. You talk about this being worse than the Yom Kippur War in the sense of how the country is endangered. Is there, but I believe that underneath you're an optimist at heart. Is, is there a way that this ends that isn't ending badly? I'm not an optimist at heart. <laughs> okay. I was trying to pull you to be an optimist at heart. Genetically pessimistic. My mother was a pessimist. So, uh, I'm not an optimist, but here, during my visit in Israel, I was asking anybody, do you see it? Do you see anything? Any reason for hope? And I didn't, I didn't hear much. I mean, the, the feeling is despair. And, and I'm afraid that the despair may lead to inaction. And which is exactly what the government would wish. That is, people are not going to, I think, it's quite possible that the response will be inadequate to the threat. And then it will be too late. Do, do you, the, the examples of pressure you talked about were mainly internal people, civil, you know, that you predict, civil disobedience, refusal to pay taxes. Do you think there's any role for Israel's historic friends abroad? And I'm particularly thinking of the Jewish diaspora. The Jewish diaspora is what I have in mind. The diaspora is... It can't be counted on, I think. They don't like it. They won't like it. But, you know, they're certainly, they're, the argument, we don't live there. So our, our ability to intervene is limited. And our moral standing in telling the Israelis what to do and what not to do is limited. And it's not been clarified that what is at stake here is becoming Hungary. Because Hungary, everybody despises. I think that's the only way of making it clear to people what we're talking about. Israel is going to be somewhere between Hungary and Turkey. And Hungary and Turkey are really not very popular. And that gives an idea of what's at stake. But when you just say it's a, it's a legislative reform, then that is not going to convince anybody. You were uh, you spoke on Israeli television uh, this week, actually on Channel Twelve, and there was a harsh sort of attack on you, saying you're a leftist and a radical leftist and shouldn't be listened to. This comes, of course, from uh, the right wing, you know, supporters of Netanyahu. Does that at all shake you, or did that do anything, or you, you're, you know? No, it doesn't shake me at all. I I want to tell you that I heard from a colleague in Israel who who was talking, you know, as I did, and members of his family tried to dissuade him from this because they were afraid for his physical safety. Mm -hmm. We are getting to this point. Now, I feel reasonably safe here. I'm old, and if I were in Israel, I wouldn't let, I wouldn't be intimidated. You know, what can they do to me at my age? But the the level of threat is quite substantial. You know, I 
And some of it, there, there could be violence, and what the effects of violence are going to be is hard to predict. So far, they're winning, and they're, they are winning. Then there is little incentive for them. You know, they can call us names, but there is little incentive to actually attack people, and I'm not going to be very... It's unlikely that I'll be a target, but I have enough friends there who could be targets. Well, I have to say that I'm still an optimist at heart, so I do I do see a different future here, but let's... Tell me. <laughs> because I think it, it, it is possible that the pressure will be such from the outside and the inside that the government will have no choice but to somehow compromise on this plan and change it, um, which is also what Netanyahu is alluding to, because I assume there are many people selling him, telling him in closed doors either from the United States or from Israel, this cannot pass. Like, this the way it is cannot pass. Well, well, I don't want to argue with your optimism, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I don't find it very persuasive because <laughs> there is such a... The quality of the change that is proposed is so general. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything is being changed. The selection of judges, the ability to overrule, and and... None of this, all of this is extremely dangerous. And, and a subset yeah. of the proposals that they're making now would be sufficient to turn Israel into Hungary. The rest would happen later. Yeah. So, and that's, that is really the problem. There isn't an easy compromise. I mean, you know, the argument that you want to train the composition of, uh, of the selection board for the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. everybody's willing, I think, as I understand it, everybody's willing to negotiate over that and over the exact composition. But nobody, I would think, who cares for Israel as a democracy uh, is going to say the government can do it alone, which is what they're proposing. And if they're proposing to give the government a majority, that's enough. So the government cannot have a majority in picking the Supreme Court. And, and the override clause by itself empties the, the Supreme Court from, it destroyed the system. It destroyed the systems of checks and balances. There are no checks and no balances in the system. And I don't see a compromise. Professor Daniel Kahneman, this has been a sobering conversation, not an optimistic one, but we are very grateful to you for it. And we hope that one day we'll be able to talk about the other aspects of your work and your uh, thought. But for now, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was a very strong conversation with Daniel Kahneman. I was bracing myself for strong uh, words from him. But somebody who's lived a long life to say this is the greatest threat Israel has faced in its entire existence. I mean, that is that is somebody sounding the alarm very loudly. Very loudly. And it, it was a, it felt like a very dark conversation uh, because it was. Um, and he's very, very worried about the direction that this country is taken. He's not the only one. There are many, many Israelis concerned. And I think what he was trying to do, you know, he's not someone who would usually sign these kinds of petitions or usually um, be part of these protests. He's trying to sound the alarm as loud as he can. He has the amplifier of being a Nobel uh, uh, Prize laureate. And 
and he has, you know, the ear of the world. And he's trying to say, save us from ourselves. I think that that is what we heard. Yeah, and uh, that message delivered loud and clear. We have some awards to hand out, your need. We do? Well, what should we start with? Me doing chutzpah, as usual. <laughs> it's becoming a pattern, isn't it? But it is. Really so, is. It but this really is, is a joyous The Israeli one. will do chutzpah. The Englishman will do the match. Okay, I'll take it upon myself. Because really, there is only one candidate for this this week. I mean, you could try and send in other options. But seriously, dear listeners, only one. And of course, I give the chutzpah award of the week to Marie Kondo. Let's talk about her for a moment. The you know, most organized woman on the planet, the woman who made a career out of this, her best-selling empire and best-selling book, life-changing magic of tidying up. And now finally, after three children, she has reached the conclusion that it's too difficult to tidy up with three children. Now, let me say... <laughs> and she's admitted, hasn't she? She doesn't tidy up herself. She does. She has admitted that she's she just cannot do it anymore. Now, I... I was never a big fan of that school of thinking. I come from the world where my grandmother used to say, you know, tidying up is just moving the mess from where people can see it to where they can't see it, which I think is a fine ideology, to be honest. But if you're going to make a career out of, you know, making little shirts into envelopes and whatever sparks joy, and if it doesn't spark joy, throw it away or whatever, give it away. But you know, and then you realize, because there are people who had three, three children before you realize this. And now you're telling them, oh, you know what? It's a little too difficult to tidy up. So I realized the answer to uh, when heroes go down, it happens because they slip on a toy in their living room. But uh, I just, I'm a little disappointed. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, no, I think the idea that she was telling everyone to tidy up before she had children and hard-pressed parents of young kids like you and parents of older kids like me, who can be messy too, believe me, were all there thinking, what, what, what is wrong with us that we can't do this? Now we know. She just didn't have kids yet. Okay, so yep, a chutzpah yep. award for Marie Kondo. I think listeners will have loved the Israelification of Marie Kondo, which you gave us before. I think that was great um, with the Reish. Um, a mensch, I give or, Hebrew lessons in my spare time if you need them, John. I really like that. No, I do just, need them, as you just, can tell. Uh, yep. um, I think we should give our Mensch Award to a friend of the podcast and previous contributor, uh, Antonia Yamin was on a few, well, Yonit will tell us exactly which edition and what she was uh, <laughs> remarking on at the time. But she's a journalist who is distinguished in Israel and in Germany, almost like Yonit, she can broadcast in more than one language, which is a rare skill. But she showed that skill to poignant effect on German television this week, where she was anchoring on Build TV, where she's an anchor. She was anchoring a discussion marking the 90th anniversary of the accession to power of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And you can hear how she closed out the discussion. 90 Jahre nach der Machtübertragung an Adolf Hitler, aber Am Israel chai. Shalom und auf Wiedersehen. So a little bit of the language of the Jews spoken mm -hmm. on German TV. It's um, Am Yisrael Chai, the people of Israel live. That's quite a powerful message anyway, given the subject matter, talking about the Nazis. But to say it on German TV, even with an audience that may not have understood actually the full meaning of what she said, very poignant, I thought, and a worthy nominee for Mensch of the Week. Does it get ratified by my co-committee member? 
I completely agree. I like it. I think it's a nice um, touch to give our former guests the Mensch Award. This um, this might get them on again. It's nice, and I think she deserves it. I think it was a beautiful program from what I from what I saw, an in depth discussion, and to her for her to end it with Amisail Chai is, uh, is is particularly poignant in the subject matter and and on German television. It's, it's uh, it was quite moving to see. I've, I've just thought of what Daniel Kahneman's parents can pressure him over. They can say, okay, you've got the Nobel, you've got the Presidential Medal of Freedom. You're still not Mensch of the Week, though. When are you going to get that? That's what he's that still got be. that work to that do, Daniel. You've still got that work to do. Um, if you have enjoyed Unholy, remember, do rate and review wherever you get your podcasts uh, and do generally spread the word. And we shall say our thank yous to Guy Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Atik, and Yair Bashan. And we shall meet next week, Jonathan. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.